Please have Isaiah 40 open in front of you. Uh, We'll be looking at the verses from that chapter. In chapter 40, verse 27, uh, Judah are making a complaint. They've got a question to ask. Why has God forgotten us? Why has God forgotten us? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by him. I wonder if that's the question or the complaint that people here this morning have. I wonder if it was your question or complaint, especially at the start of the pandemic, when we saw all the changes come into the way we live life, the changes to our church, to our social lives, to our family life, to our work life. Maybe after a few months of that, you stopped asking those questions. You kind of resigned yourself to the situation that we're in. But maybe now you've begun to ask the question for different reasons. Why has God forgotten me as I struggle through the difficulties of schooling my children at home? Why has God forgotten me and allowed my future to be jeopardized by the changes in my education? Why has God forgotten me and uh, removed the opportunity that that I would normally have had at university? Why has God forgotten me and allowed these tensions to rise up in my family or in my marriage? Why is he not answering my prayers regards these things? Why has God forgotten me and allowed my health to deteriorate so rapidly? Why has God forgotten me and taken away some of my nearest and dearest? Why am I bereaved? Maybe it's not circumstances that cause you to ask these questions. Maybe, maybe it's the strength of your own faith at the moment. You feel like your prayers are hitting that proverbial brass ceiling above your bedroom. Uh, you wonder why there is no joy in your faith. It's not that you've backslidden. It's not that you've stopped serving. It's not that you've stopped reading God's word or seeking him. But there is just no joy or, or life in your faith anymore, you feel. And you ask with the Jews, why has God forgotten me? My way seems to be hidden from the Lord. My cause seems to be disregarded by him. Where is he? And why am I left alone? Isaiah chapter 40 seeks to give you not answers, but comfort. Isaiah 40 gives you comfort if you are in that sort of situation. It doesn't answer the wise, but it gives you reason to persevere through those difficulties. We're going to consider the comfort that Isaiah offers to the people of Jerusalem. Before we get there, it'd be worth just recapping a little bit how we've got to this point. We picked up Isaiah a few months back. We've had a break to go through a number of other things, especially since the start of the new year. And we're going to pick up again in Isaiah and and go from chapter 40 through taking select passages through to the end of the prophecy. Isaiah was a prophet of God. He's speaking about 700 years before Jesus came. Uh, He's speaking to Judah. So that is, if you think of God's people, the Israelites, they've split in two. The northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. And Judah are the ones where they've got Jerusalem, the capital city, and they've got the temple, uh, and they really are the faithful people of God. Those are the Jews who are left when Jesus eventually turns up on the scene. And in the opening chapters of Isaiah's prophecy, we hear that Isaiah is sent by God. Go and preach to Judah. Preach to them because their religion is empty. They've got all the outward forms. They've got all the the religious ceremonies. They've got all the hierarchies within the temple. but, But their religion is empty. And it's futile and it's nothing. 
and Isaiah, I want you to go and preach and warn them. Warn them that if they continue in this hypocrisy, judgment is coming. Because ultimately they've rejected me. They might still be following the rituals I've given them, but they do not know me. Uh, They do not love me. And so judgment is coming towards them unless they repent and turn back to me. And Isaiah, just be warned, when you go and preach, no one will listen. In fact, the more you preach, the more they will turn against you. But Isaiah, this is the task I've set you to. Go and preach. So Isaiah goes and preaches, and the first uh, 39 chapters are all about the way Isaiah preaches to Judah and gives them this warning and urges them to repent. And Judah continues to reject the message. And chapter 39 ends with now the decisive note. Uh, Chapter 39, verse 6, the time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up in this day will be carried off to Babylon. Judah, you're going to be destroyed. A much bigger, much more powerful nation is going to come in and sweep away all the promises of God that you thought you that you thought you had hold of. The promised land, uh, the blessing, the inheritances, uh, the gold, the glory, it'll all be gone. And you as a people will be carried off into exile. Now, we know that that is eventually what happens uh, several years after King Hezekiah. uh, But eventually it happens. Babylon come and take away the Jews. And chapter 40 is written prospectively. So it's it's looking forward. Isaiah is writing chapter 40, addressing it to the people in the situation in exile. He's writing to people who are 150 years beyond where he currently stands. People who have suffered the, uh, the attack from Babylon. People who have lived in Babylon for 70 years and who are now asking the question, where is God? What has he done to his people? Why does he not love us and care for us anymore? Now just consider for a moment, why is it that the Jews in that situation, the Jews in exile, why would they consider themselves disregarded by God? Well, what was, their, what was their idea of the good life? What would have been a sign of blessing for them? A sign of blessing, the things they would look for would be, first and foremost, the strength of their nation. They would be praying to God that their nation would be united under the rule of a good, godly king. That they would have peace in that nation. That they, they would have strength and security in that nation. They would be praying as well, in part, for material blessing. That their harvests would be bountiful. That that people would be fertile and have big families and have the food to feed these big families. They would be praying that, that Judah as a nation would be the envy of the world. That people would look to Judah and see, wow, their God, whoever he is, must surely be powerful. Look at the way he protects and provides for them. These are the sorts of things that the people of Judah would have used as a sign of God's blessing. But what do they actually have? If they're in exile in Babylon, well, there is no stable nation. There is no political security. There is no good king who is over them. There is a pagan king. And the people, they've even lost their national identity. Who are the Jews now? We're all kind of mixed up with the people of Babylon. People were marrying into the Babylonian families. And so their national identity is lost. Jerusalem, their capital city, the place where the temple of God was located, that has been ravaged. 
the walls have been knocked down. The temple has been destroyed. All of the, the gold and the glory of the temple has been plundered and taken away. And so there's no opportunity even for the people to worship God. Well, they can worship him, but they, not in the way that he's prescribed. They can't offer the sacrifices that they're told to offer. Uh, they can't draw close to God. There is no place of God's presence, his Shekinah glory, that the cloud that rested in the temple. Where can the people go to meet with God? And so you can see how they would be asking the question, why has he forgotten us? Why does it seem like he's uh, left us alone? And so Isaiah recognizes the situation that people will eventually be in, 150 years down the line from where he currently stands. And so he writes chapter 40 to preach to them, and he preaches a message of comfort. Comfort, he says. Comfort, comfort my people. Verse 1 and 2, speak tenderly. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. I've given you the messages of judgment. I've, I've sent the condemnation. I've warned you with harsh words, but, but now is the time for comfort. Now is the time for gracious words. Now is the time for you to receive mercy. Why? What comfort is there? Be comforted in this, Israel, uh, Judah. Verse 2, your hard service has been completed. All those years where you've lost inheritance, uh, wealth, family, identity, your time of hard service is coming to an end. You're going to be restored to what you once were. Your sin has been paid for. You have received double from the Lord's hands. That's not, by the way, that God has, uh, has treated them harshly and paid them back more than they ought to have deserved. It's more the idea of uh, probably uh, they've received the double. They've received the exact uh, replica of what they are owed. Your time of hard service, your time of punishment is coming to an end. That's a reason for comfort. And uh, Isaiah goes on, verse 3 to 5, Comfort my people because God himself is going to return to you. You've felt distance from God. You've not got uh, his presence there in the temple with you. But God himself is going to return. He's no longer going to be distant and far off. Therefore, rouse the people in the desert. Shout out and call to people. Prepare the way for the Lord. The idea here, the picture, is like uh, people, when they see their king who's been off on battle, returning to his city, uh, the people would rush out and prepare a, a road for him to come in on, a special road to welcome back the king. The closest thing we have to it today is perhaps when Air Force One lands at the airport and you've got the ticker tape parade and the, uh, the big brass band and the journalists all there with their cameras. They, 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 they make a road ready to receive the king, the, the one with authority, and they welcome him, him, him in with glory. Once again, God is going to return to his people and when he comes, he's going to bring with him uh, power and he's going to bring glory with him. Verse 5, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. The glory that Israel as a, as a unified nation once had under the reign of David and Solomon, the idea is that that glory will be restored. God will again rule over his people. It will be a time of joy, a time of celebration. Oh boy, do you remember what it was to be joyful? They might have thought. Do you remember what it was to celebrate as the people of God, in the presence of God? Comfort my people, says Isaiah. A time is coming when you will be able to once again. Could it, be, could it really be true? 
Could it really be true, they might ask? Uh, yeah, we, we've had these sorts of promises from God before. Even at the time when you were preaching judgment to us, there was always the offer of mercy and repentance. And what was the heart of the people of Judah? We, we confess that we turned against it. Uh, we had the opportunity to receive the sign. Even we saw in Hezekiah's reign, God deliver us and save us in miraculous, powerful ways. And even with those wonderful gifts of God that God had given us, we still turned away from him. Can we really expect all this goodness of God to return to us if, if we continue in our sin? Won't it just come and then see our failure and then uh, go back again? Leave us on our own again? Not this time, says Isaiah. Verse 6 to 8, that's what's going on in these verses. Surely uh, men are like grass. Their glory is like the flowers of the field. It's interesting that the word glory is used there. The, the Hebrew word behind that is the word hesed, which, if, if you know a little bit about the Bible, is the word used for God's covenant love, God's steadfast love, God's enduring love. That's the word hesed. And the hesed of men, the glory of men, what's that like? Well, it's not, it's not enduring, not like God's love. It's not never failing like God's love is. It's like a flower in a field. It, it spurts up. You get these bursts of emotion and affection and then it withers and dies. And yes, Judah, if God's return was dependent upon your love for him, it would fail. Because your love for him so often fails and withers away. But this time it's not going to be based upon your love for him. It's going to be based on his love for you. The grass withers, the flowers fall, But the word of God stands forever. This is God promising to you that he is going to return. And so this time it will not fail. And it cannot be thwarted by your own sin. Comfort. Comfort my people. Verse 9 to 11, Isaiah goes on. Well, well, raise your voice then. Uh, share, Share this good news with those around. Spread the news of salvation. God himself is going to return. Here he is. End of verse 9. Here is your God. The sovereign Lord is coming with power. He's got one arm that's acting in power. One arm to bring salvation with him. He's going to restore the strength. He's going to restore the glory. He's going to restore the might to Judah. And not only for him, but all of his people uh, will benefit with him. His reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him and shares in this glory. But he's not just a warrior. He's also a shepherd. With his other arm, he gathers the lambs. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He knows the difficulties that you have endured in your time of exile. He knows the suffering that you've endured. And he does not act with, uh, without concern for the needs of the individual, but he gently leads those that have young. He knows your situation and he knows how to care and provide. Comfort. Comfort my people. If you've been left asking the question, where is God? Why is my cause disregarded from me? Wouldn't you love a similar sort of promise to this that Isaiah is giving the people? Wouldn't it be an encouragement to know that God was going to comfort you in the same way? Well, the question is then, did God keep his promise? Did God come and return and provide for the exiles? Well, yes and no. They did return from exile. Seventy years after being in Babylon, they were, they were sent back even by the king of Babylon. 
sent back to Jerusalem. They were provided money, uh, materials, to build back up the walls of their city, to build back up the temple. And they returned to Jerusalem. There was all sorts of ways in which God's hand was seen in making that way open for them and providing for them and making sure that the project worked. The temple was eventually rebuilt. Sacrifices were again offered there. The people were once again taught in the ways of God. They repented of their sin and they returned to God their Father. Yes, God provided. He delivered on his promises. But no, not at that time anyway. I mean, when when the exiles returned to Jerusalem, you would not have said that their hard service was over. It was difficult rebuilding the walls. Yes, they got support, but they also faced fierce oppression and persecution and difficulty. Um, They never realized the glory of the independent nation that they once had under Solomon and David. They were never, again, the envy of the world. They never had kings of other nations coming to to bow down before their king. In fact, it's questionable whether they even set up uh, another monarchy. Their sin was paid for. Well, was it really? The way that God had provided for sin to be paid for was not imprisonment or or hard labour. It was through sacrifice. It was over 20 years after the exiles returned that they eventually were able to commission the temple and sacrifices could once again be made. And certainly this, this God figure who comes with power and might and yet compassion and care didn't seem to materialise in the years of their return. Yes, they had uh, priests and prophets who were helpful to them, uh, but not, not, not carrying all these characteristics that are described here in these verses. And so we see then that what Isaiah's doing in offering the Jews comfort, he's not offering them comfort that is an escape from their difficult circumstances. That's not the comfort that Isaiah is offering the people. Isaiah is not pointing them to, look, the day of the return from exile is coming. Isaiah is not saying everything difficult will be uh, removed and you will once again enjoy blessed, free happy lives. That's not the way he comforts the people. In fact, the way he comforts the people is pointing them to the day when all of these promises that we've discussed and read were fulfilled. The day when God himself would arrive on the scene with power and with compassion. When was that day? What is the day that Isaiah is pointing the people to in order to comfort them? Well, the day is the day when Jesus comes. Mark's Gospel, perhaps the first New Testament book written, opens with chapter 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling. In the desert is John the Baptist. There he is, out in the desert. And he's saying, prepare the way for the Lord. Make the way ready for him. But not with bricks and and roads and, and civil infrastructure. Prepare the way by having a heart of repentance. A heart that recognises your own failing. A heart that is, uh, that is ready to repent of sin and to follow Christ. Because look, here he is, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, who pays your sin on your behalf. Jesus Christ is the one that Isaiah is speaking of here. 
And Jesus is not only a one sent from God, as a messenger from God, we find out that actually Jesus Christ is God himself. Here is your God, the people could say when they met Jesus Christ. We see it in his power, in his miraculous power, in the way he teaches from scripture. We see it in the way Jesus receives the approval of God, the voice from heaven, the spirit descending upon him, testimony to all those around that this is God himself. We see it in the names that Jesus takes on for himself. We see the power of Jesus, this arm of power that comes to bring the salvation of God. You see his power because on the cross, for example, Jesus defeats the greatest enemy of God's people and he blunts his greatest weapon against God's people. He defeats Satan by removing his weapon of guilt and accusation. Satan is the accuser who says before God, this one has sinned. He has broken your law. She deserves condemnation and punishment and hell. They have rejected you. That's the power. That is the weapon of Satan. And on the cross, Jesus takes that from him. Because on the cross, Jesus says, well, lay their sin upon me and I will pay for it. I will receive double for all their sins. I will endure their time of hard service on their behalf. And Satan, the greatest enemy of God's people, is left without a weapon against us. And Christ shows his arm of power when, three days after his death, he rises from death. And he defeats the power of death. Again, that great enemy over all of God's people. He comes with an arm of power. He comes with an arm of compassion. Jesus shows that he is the shepherd king. He comes to care for his people. He comes not as as one separate and distinct from our sufferings and difficulties, but he enters into them. He begins his life here on earth in abject poverty. He's laid in an animal's feeding trough, for goodness sake, because his mother and father didn't even have a, a, a cot for him to lie in. He rejects the the power and the self-glory of the religious leaders that was so common to Judah and that was still common in the days uh, of the Jewish religion when Jesus was around. He embraces humility and he cares for individuals. He steps aside from the crowd to deal with the the infirmities, the sicknesses, uh, the, the demonic influence that people have. And he gives his spirit to his church. When he returns to heaven, he doesn't leave us as orphans, but he's here with us. He continues to care and provide for us as his own body, as his bride. And he nurtures us and feeds us and provides. When Isaiah talks about comfort, when Isaiah speaks of the day when God himself will come with power in one arm and tender compassion in the other, the day that he's pointing people to is the day when Jesus Christ turns upon the scene. He isn't offering, the comfort that Isaiah is offering offering is not an escape from the difficulties of their situation. The comfort that Isaiah is offering is not an escape from exile. Comfort is found in the salvation that Jesus Christ brings. That's where the comfort is found. And when God preaches comfort to you, today, here, in the 21st century here in Loughborough, in the middle of the pandemic, knowing all of those difficulties that you've endured for the past year, 
knowing all the difficulties that might be irrelevant to the pandemic. God's message of comfort to you is not that you will escape from these difficulties. God's message of comfort to you is that salvation is offered to you in the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. It makes perfect sense, actually, that this is the source of comfort. Because ask yourself, what comfort is there apart from comfort in Christ Jesus? What comfort is there apart from comfort in Christ Jesus? You might be in a situation where you think, it's my bereavement is my difficulty, and therefore comfort, ultimately comfort, would be for that bereavement not to have happened, for me to have my family still around me here. But ask yourself, look at the other people around you who do have their families here. Are they without need for comfort? Your situation might be that you are living in singleness, and that is a, that is a difficult cross for you to bear. And you, you, you wish, you pray for, if only I was married, if I only had a family of my own. But is that the comfort that you need? Ask yourself, of those people who have been given that gift, are they themselves without comfort? Uh, need, without need for comfort? Don't they also, don't, don't married people uh, need comfort? Aren't they looking for something still? Perhaps your situation is that you're in poverty. Uh, you've lost your job. Uh, you're struggling to make ends meet. And you think that if only God would provide me the comfort of knowing that the bills were going to be paid this week. Well, what about those other people in your church who, who do have that comfort of knowing the bills will be paid? Are they without need for comfort? Look, the things that we so often pin our hopes on, that we think, if only I could escape this one difficulty, everything would be okay. It's it's not ultimately the comfort that we need. It doesn't get us to that point of rest and security that we hope it will do. But in Christ, if you have Christ, what do you have? You have the promise of resurrection. You have a place in his family. You have an opportunity to serve him as his bride. You have all the riches of heaven. You have all the provision of God at your disposal. And you have the hope of eternal life. And each of these things answers and provides that desire for comfort that we might have looked for in other things. What comfort is there apart from comfort in Christ? What real, lasting, genuine comfort is there apart from comfort in Christ? And ask yourself this, unless unless the power of sin has been dealt with in my heart, then what material gift could God give me? What escape from this difficulty could God provide that I would not then go and mess up? That I would not then serve as uh, serving a created thing as though it was the creator? Serving it as an idol? What we need is not gifts that, that help us escape the difficulties of life here on earth. What we need is Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings for us. Believers, your comfort is not return from exile. Your comfort is that all the riches of heaven are yours in Christ. Your comfort is that the promise and reality of your sins forgiven, here and now, today. Your comfort is that you have a place in the family of God and his spirit lives and works and breathes in you 
and works, uh, carries you through life. Now, just before we close, I want to just ask one brief question. If this is the comfort that God offers, comfort in the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation, forgiveness from sin, the promise of the resurrection, does that mean he is unconcerned with the difficulties of life? Does that mean it doesn't matter that my marriage is on the rocks? Does it mean that it doesn't matter that I've lost my job? Does it mean that it doesn't matter that my stress levels are rising? Does it mean that it doesn't matter uh, that he doesn't care about my mental health uh, and the difficulties that I endure because of it? I said that Isaiah 40 will not give you answers, but it will give you comfort. It will not give you answers. I can't answer the why. I can't tell you specifically what God is doing with those things in your life. I cannot tell you why he's not answered your prayer to remove those difficulties. But Isaiah does something different. He says, look at it from a different perspective. Don't look at it from your perspective in the middle of the difficulty, staring up at the God who does not seem to be moving. Change your perspective. Start up there in the heavenlies. Start from God's perspective and see what he sees. See his power and control and look down and then see, is anything outside of God's hand? Is anything outside of his control? Look at who God is, Isaiah says, in verse 12 to 31. Who is it, verse 12, who, who, who measures the waters in the hollows of his hand? All the power of the raging sea, all the icebergs, uh, bigger than the size of London, there was one broke off from, uh, uh, from the North Pole this, this week, I saw in the news. All those icebergs, all, all the waves, all the depths of the oceans, God can hold them in the palm of his hand. Verse 14, who is it who taught God how to create? Who is it that taught him how gravity works? Who is it that taught him how cells reproduce? Who is it that taught him how babies are formed in the womb? Verse 15, what nation can thwart God's plans? What nation is stronger than him? What army on earth could possibly defeat God's intention? Verse 18, what idol is there? What other false god is there that has anything to challenge God with? The thing about idols is we take the glories that God has given us and we dress up these idols in them. God is the one who gave these glories. God is the one who doesn't need dressing. God is the one who dresses us in glory. The power and the control and the sovereignty of God has been seen in all of creation from the very beginning. You see it every night the stars come out. God puts each one in its place. God knows the name of each one. And most of those stars you see are perhaps just actually galaxies with, with planets and, and, and more stars spinning round inside them. And God knows the place of each individual one. He, he has it all in his control. Why then do you ask? Why then do you assume that your way is hidden from God? Why do you assume that he has forgotten you? He's not forgotten anything. Nothing can escape his notice. Nothing escapes his power. Nothing thwarts his plan or purpose. Here is comfort. That whatever difficulty or situation you face, God remains in control. Is it good? Not necessarily. But take comfort in this. That the difficulties you endure are the same difficulties that Jesus Christ endured. Was it good for Jesus to be rejected? 
by the religious leaders? Was it good that Jesus was misunderstood by the crowds? Was it good that Jesus was tempted and even uh, rebuked by his own family and by his disciples closest to him? Was it good? It wasn't outside of God's plan. And although it might not have been good in the moment, you can see with hindsight how God was using even those things that were not good for a much greater good. Think about the apostles. Was it good that Paul was shipwrecked, beaten, whipped, starved? Was it good that he was rejected, stoned almost to death? Was it good? Was it good that he despaired even of life itself because of the difficulties he had to endure? We wouldn't say it was good, but we know this, it wasn't outside of God's control. And Paul himself was even able to look back and say, look, these things have happened so that I might grow in my faith. I've been taught through this despair how to trust and depend upon God. I've prayed for this thorn in my flesh to be removed from me, and all I've received is the grace of God to help me endure it. The difficulty that you currently endure might not be a good thing, but it's not outside of God's plan. And it is not defeating God's plan for you. And God's comfort is not that you would escape it. God's comfort is that he will bear you up. He will provide for you. He will hold you in the palm of his hand. He will care for you, carry you in his arm like a, like a lamb. So that when you come through the other side, you will look back and realize, really, I was, I was soaring on wings like an eagle. I was enabled, I was given power to run and not grow weary. I have been able to walk through life with Christ without growing faint. When you switch your perspective from our vision, which only sees the difficulty, up to seeing it from God's perspective, who controls all things, you realise that these difficulties are all part of his purpose for us. They're being used for our good.